Right. Okay, everyone, let's begin with a let's begin with a word of prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word which you have preserved for us. We're so thankful that we can receive instructions that are reliable, an accurate record of what has happened and what you've done for us. We ask that you help us to, this evening to understand it better. And we ask for your blessing upon this time. We ask your guidance upon us, upon the speaking and the hearing. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Textual criticism and textual variance. This is our third time on this. And last time that when I spoke, I talked to you about how textual scholars, given that there are textual variants, how textual scholars decide which textual variants are most likely the original reading. There is a method to this. There is a procedure that they use. They consider the external evidence and the internal evidence. The external evidence would be things like the age of the manuscripts, the grouping of the manuscripts, the distribution of the manuscripts where they are found. The internal evidence would be things like the habits of the scribes, the copyists, and the peculiarities, both stylistic and doctrinal, of the author. Each biblical author, even though though they are all directed by the Holy Spirit, they have their own individual emphases and and styles. And I gave you an acronym BOBSLED to help you remember the external evidence. The first part of BOBSLED, the BOB part is the external evidence. The last part, the SLED part, is the internal evidence. BOB stands for best, oldest, and broadest so those are the things that the factors that the uh, textual scholars consider in the external evidence uh, best is a little bit complicated it, it talks about uh, the agreement of, of, the two, of two text types I, I talked to you earlier about the different text types the, the Alexandrian text types and the western text type and the uh, Byzantine text type so if two text types agree in, in the textual variants that they have, that's a, that's a good sign that that is probably the original reading. Um, there are certain papyri and unseals, and I explained earlier what those are too, different types of manuscripts. Um, in the Alexandrian and, and or Western text indicates an early reading, and also the existence of a reading only in the Byzantine text type and no, and no other text type, that's not a, a good sign. That's probably not original reading. Oldest, that's pretty simple, a textual variant that appears in earlier manuscripts is preferred over a textual variant which only begins to appear in later manuscripts. Um, The broadest, a textual variant which appears in manuscripts with a wide geographic distribution is preferred over a textual variant which only appears in manuscripts from one area. So that's pretty self-explanatory. The internal evidence, uh, uh, SLED, that stands for shortest, like the author's style, explains the others, and difficult. So a shorter reading is preferred over a longer reading, usually because it's more likely that a copyist would add information to a text than they would leave out information. Uh, 
like the author's style. Uh, the preferred reading is that which is more in harmony with the usage of the author elsewhere. And I'll, I'll give you some examples of that later on, uh, of things that are considered the, the original reading because they're more in, in keeping with the author's style. The reading is preferred which um, um, best explains the others. If you have one reading that, that explains how other variant readings could have arisen, that's probably the earliest original reading. Difficult, the more difficult reading is preferred over an easier reading. It is considered more likely that a copyist would change a verse to make it easier to understand than that he would change a verse to make it more difficult to understand. So then generally scholars think that the more difficult reading is usually the original one. Then we looked at we began looking at some uh, some textual variants. The first one, the first two that we looked at were the biggies, the big ones. Uh, the longer ending of Mark, Mark 16, verses 9 through 20 in the King James. Scholars do not think that that longer ending of Mark was in the original uh, of the Gospel of Mark. And I gave you some evidence for exclusion, reasons why. Uh, scholars don't think that that was the original reading. Many of the aberrant teachings like drinking poison and handling snakes are derived from that longer ending of Mark. We looked at the other long uh, textual variant, the Percopi de Adultera, the uh, narrative of the woman taken in adultery. In the King James, it's John 7.53 through 8.11. Scholars do not think that, that was part of the original Gospel of John. I showed you some evidence, evidence for exclusion of that. I think one of, the, one of the most telling aspects of that is that this story of the woman taken in adultery doesn't appear in the same place in all manuscripts. It, it appears in different places in the Gospel of John, and in one case it appears in the Gospel of Luke. So that's an indication that, that copyists were looking for some place to insert that story, some good place to insert that story. And then we looked at some uh, textual variants in the book of Matthew. Uh, in Matthew 5.22 uh, some versions say, everyone being angry with his brother without a cause. In other ones, other, ver other manuscripts that are used to make versions uh, say, everyone being angry with his brother. So it doesn't have that qualifier, that without a cause. And scholars think that, that originally it didn't have, the book of Matthew did not have that expression, without cause. We looked at... Uh, the, what has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer, uh, that, um, that doxology and, and amen at the end, it, it seems that that was added to make the, more, the prayer more suitable for use in a, in a liturgy, in a church liturgy, that it was not in, originally in the book of Matthew. We looked at, the, at this, uh, howbeit this kind goeth out not, but by prayer and fasting, it says in the King James, and we looked at the, at the context of that. The, the disciples were unable to cast out 
demons from in a particular situation and and supposedly in in some manuscripts Christ said that this kind goes out not by but by prayer and fasting that and fasting part apparently was not in the original gospel of Matthew so that, those that's what we went through last time now we'll continue through the new testament and I'll show you some more textual variants hopefully I'll give you an understanding of what of how textual variants work and and perhaps give you some insight into how textual some textual variants came about mark 1 1 the beginning of the good news about jesus the messiah that's from the tniv today's today's niv it's called in the esv it says the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god so we have that additional expression of the son of god and most modern translations and the king james as well uh, do include that that statement about jesus christ son of god and i've given you uh, a statement here from um, philip comfort a textual scholar he says most scholars argue for the nu reading now nu that uh, the two biggies, the blue one and the red one. <laughs> the uh, N stands for Nestle Aland, and U, U is UBS, United Bible Society. So those are the two main Greek texts. And the scholars who put those texts together argue for the, this reading, the Son of God, because of its excellent document, documentary attestation and because it suits Mark's literary plan. So there you see the external evidence and the internal evidence. That's why I wanted to, to, to give you that quote, because it shows you how the scholars consider those two things, the, the external evidence and the internal evidence. It is argued that the Son of God is essential to Mark's title because it introduces a major theme in Mark, Jesus' divine sonship. So in other words, this, is, this sounds like something Mark would say. This is how he would say it. So we're, we're considering the internal evidence, how it squares with the rest of Mark's writings. Luke 4, 4. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. It says in the King James. But in ESV it says, And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. It does not have the part about by every word of God. So those are the two textual variants. Some manuscripts include them, some do not. So the King James and the New King James, which is based on the King James, they do have it, but most modern translations do not have but by every word of God. Now, what is going on here is, I told you before about harmonization, where if you have the four Gospels, a copyist would tend to say, well, here, here in Luke it doesn't say but by every word of God. But I remember in Matthew 4, 4, it does say that. So I'm going to include that here as well. So that's how a lot of these textual variants arose is because the, the, the copyists wanted to harmonize the Gospels and make them, make them more alike. So that, that's how this, but by every word of God, why it's in some manuscripts, but it's not in the very earliest ones of, of the book of Luke. So Matthew does include that in his account of the temptation of Christ, but Luke doesn't. 
once again, as you read the four Gospels, they don't contradict one another, just some things, are, some details are included in one and not in another. He, Luke is not denying that Christ said that, he's just not including that in his account. Uh, going on to John, John 1.18 no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And in the NASB it says, No one hath seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So the two variants that we have, only begotten Son or only begotten God... And, and one, of the, one of the things that you will notice here is that the translators don't always follow the, text, the textual scholars, the lead of the textual scholars. Sometimes the textual scholars will decide this is probably the original reading, and the, and the translators will say, nah, I don't quite agree with that. I think maybe this is the original reading. So sometimes they, they don't follow that lead. And so you'll see that uh, not only is this reading found in the in the older King James, but it's found in the RSV, and it's also found in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the reading of the Son. Whereas the ESV and the NASV, the NIV, the NET, they say the only begotten God. The, um, the phrase that is used here, uh, monogenes theos, it's a difficult to translate that into into English. And one of the problems with, with the only begotten God is that readers might get the idea that the Son is a begotten God. In other words, that he has an origin, a beginning. But that's not really what, what John is emphasizing here. He's not, he's not emphasizing the origin of the Son, of the Word. He's emphasizing the, his, his uniqueness, that he's not like anyone else, that there's no one else like him. Another thing about this expression, the only begotten God, is that it, it fits in with what John is doing in his prologue, in, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 18. So he tells us that the word is God, and then he tells us in, in verse 14 that he's an only one, and then in verse 18 he combines the two titles. He's an only God. He's the only one, and he's God. So this is, is consistent with, with John's style, what he's trying to accomplish in that, in that prologue. So that, that expression, monogenes um, theos, it could be uh, translated as an only one, God. In other words, it's not, it's not emphasizing his origins, his beginning, the fact that he was begotten. It's emphasizing his oneness, his uniqueness. And here's another one in John, another textual variant. John 3.13 And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. That's the way King James reads. The ESV says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. So it doesn't have that additional the one in heaven, who is in heaven. It, 
so the, the King James and the, the, the New King James, the New English Bible, they, they have that additional, the one being in heaven. Whereas the RSV, the ESV, the NASV, the NIV, the NLT, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the Net Bible, those, uh, those translations do not have it. So the shorter reading has excellent and early support from, from the Pyre and the early unzeals. I explained to you what, what those types of manuscripts are. It's been suggested that uh, this edition, the one who being in heaven, uh, came from John 1.18 where it talks about the one being in the bosom of the Father. So the copyist, apparently at some point a copyist thought he should add that expression, the one being in heaven. Now at the time the copyist wrote that, Jesus was in heaven, but but he wasn't in heaven when he was here on earth in, in the incarnation. So it is, it is thought that that is not the original reading. So now we'll, we'll move on to the epistles. In Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But some manuscripts have, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have, or let us have. Which is it? Well, mo- most uh, modern English translations, as well as the King James, uh, go with, we have peace with God. Only the New English Bible has, of the, of the main English translations has, let us have peace with God. Now, when we ask ourselves, well, which which of these is correct? We have or let us have? Well, we have does suit the context better because Paul was speaking of what believers have received as a result of being justified. It seems unlikely that Paul was urging believers that he was exhorting them to have to be at peace with God. He was saying we have peace with God. He was not telling telling believers, let us have peace with God. So in other words, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's something that he has done for us. It's not something that we have to have to do. We have peace with God. Now one of the things that you will find about textual variance is that if you look at textual variance in English translation, you will say, well, this is nothing like that. How could, how could anybody get this, think this was that? I mean, but if you look at them in Greek, many times you will find that they are quite similar. They look similar or they sound similar. And I'll, I'll show you some examples of that as we go along. In the Greek, there's not much difference between we have and let us have. There's only one letter difference. And we have, see, and we have, there's, there's a, a letter here called Omicron, which looks like our English letter O, and it is the short O sound. And in this word, this letter here that looks like a W, that's Omega. That's the long O sound. So if a person were reading a manuscript 
and a copyist was writing down what the reader said, he would be hard-pressed to know whether the reader said Ekamen or Ekomen. Ekomen or Ekomen. They sound very much alike. So unless the, the reader was reading very slowly and enunciating very clearly, it would be hard to distinguish the two. So you can easily see how a, a copyist would, would understand that as Ekomen instead of Ekomen. First Corinthians 2 1. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. That's from the new RSV. The ESV says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So we have the mystery of God versus the testimony of God. And once again, this is a, a situation where not all of the uh, translations go with what uh, the textual scholars say. So we have the mystery of God in the, the new NRSV, where as you see, you notice that down below the, in the original RSV, it, didn't, it had testimony, but they switched it to mystery. Um, it's also found in the, the New Jerusalem Bible and the New American Bible and the New Living Translation. Now, the, the New Jerusalem Bible and the New American Bible, those are Catholic translations, so you can expect them. They, they, Catholics love their mysteries, so they, <laughs> you can expect them to go with mystery. Um, but the, the King James had testimony, and the original RSV, the ESV, the NASV, the NIV, the NEB, and the, I forget what REB stands for, uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible and the, the Net Bible. They all go with, uh, with testimony. Now, the, the internal evidence and the external evidence are divided on this one, so it's, it's not easy to make a, a, a decision. Uh, the immediate context seems to, to, seems to support mystery, and that's what, what the... Uh, textual scholars have decided because chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians focuses on the need for believers to receive revelation from God to truly understand all the hidden secrets and mysteries the secret riches of Christ that are, that are, that are available in Christ that Christ Jesus has made available to us that he's given access to us and later on in the, in the same chapter in verse 7, it does talk about uh, the, the secret things of God and the things that are, are not known. So it, mystery is, is uh, likely the original reading here. Oh, uh, one other thing I wanted to explain. Notice that up above we have NAB, the, the New American Bible. And down below we have the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. The New American Bible and the New American Standard Bible are two different translations. They're, the NAB, the, the New American Bible, that's a Catholic translation. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, it's not a Catholic translation. So there's, I wanted to clarify that because the two can easily be confused. Um, the NAS, NASB is one that we use a lot here in, in Gospel of Grace because it's a very good translation. The other one that I wanted to talk about 
is the, the New Jerusalem Bible. And you see the NJAB up there. The, 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 the Jerusalem Bible is a Catholic translation. Now, the, the updated version is called the New Jerusalem Bible. But there is another Bible called the Jerusalem Bible. <laughs> so this Jerusalem Bible is a Jewish translation of the Old Testament, which is printed in Israel. So there, there's two different Jerusalem Bibles. <laughs> this, this is the one that's, the Catholic one is the one that's most widely known, but there are actually two Jerusalem Bibles. Two Bibles by that name that are very different. Now, one thing I wanted to show you is, is how, see, mystery and testimony aren't very much alike in English, but in Greek they, they kind of look alike, because mystery is mysterion, and testimony is marturion. Marturion is, is the testimony or witness is the, is the word that, uh, that, the Greek word that our English word martyr is, uh, you know, one who gives his life for the faith, is by giving his testimony, his his uh, testimony for Christ. So that's where we derive the word martyr from, from Marturion. But you can see that, that, that in Greek, those, those two words are a little bit similar. Ephesians 1.1 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. That was the reading in the King James. This is the reading in the ESV. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. So we have some manuscripts which say an apostle of Jesus Christ, and other manuscripts which say an apostle of Christ Jesus. Which is it? Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus? <laughs> well, here, here's, where, here, here's where I'm going with this. You remember how we... Uh, one of, I mentioned that part of the internal evidence is which reading is more consistent with something that the author would say. Um, Jesus Christ is not characteristic of, of Paul when he describes his, himself as an apostle. He, descri he usually describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, not an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, if we look at other, other the beginnings of other epistles, 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, Galatians 1.1, 1, 1, Colossians 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, Titus 1.1. 1, 1. In all of those, Paul describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. So as we look at all of Paul's writings, it's most likely that Paul would say, would describe himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus rather than apostle of Jesus Christ. So I just I wanted to, to give you that as an illustration of how we can discern these things by considering all of the writings of that of that particular author, and we can we can decide well this is 
I think that the author is more likely to say this than this. Now, there's, there are actually three different sets of textual variants in this, in this one verse, Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, here I'm showing you a couple of, you see in blue, to the saints being in Ephesus, and then down below it, it also has in Ephesus. Um, some manuscripts don't have in Ephesus. And that's, that's a pretty easy one to explain, because this epistle was sent to the church in Ephesus, but it was also read in the other churches in Asia. And so that's why we have some manuscripts which don't say in Ephesus and some that do. So that's a pretty simple one. The other one, some manuscripts say to the saints being in Ephesus, and some say to all the saints being in Ephesus. So scholars have decided that that probably, that to all the saints is probably not in the original. It's probably just to the saints being in Ephesus rather than to all the saints. Now here's, here's another uh, tricky one. For we are the circumcision, Philippians 3.3. 3. We are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. That's the King James. The NASB says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So the two textual variants that we're looking at here, the ones worshiping God in spirit, with a little s, or the ones worshiping in or by God's spirit. So is Paul talking about those who worship God in their spirit, or is it talking about the ones who worship God by, by or in his spirit? That, that's the, the question that we're looking at. So, once again, you can see some of the, um, some of the, the modern English translations, the, the RSV and the NAV, uh, go with that God in, in spirit, meaning in the spirit of the ones that are worshiping. Whereas the most modern English translations, the, the New Revised Standard Version, the, the ESV, the NASV, the NIV, the NLT, the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, the Net Bible, all go with, uh, with worshiping in or by God's spirit, by the power of God's spirit. Well, probably the reason that some of the translators decided to go with worshiping God in spirit, the, the first textual variant, is because they thought that worshiping needed a direct object. Now, in other words, if you're worshiping, you're worshiping something, what are you worshiping? Well, you're worshiping God. But it seems that for Christians, it's a given that if you're worshiping, you're worshiping God. I mean, you're not worshiping anything else or anyone else, you're worshiping God. So, so for Christians, a direct object wasn't needed. You didn't need to describe what you're worshiping. So it's thought more likely that Paul is talking about worshiping God by, by his spirit, by the power of his spirit. 
First Thessalonians 2, 7. Well, this is a, this is a fun one. <laughs> but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. Now, a nurse, they don't, by nurse here, they don't mean a nurse in a hospital. They mean a nursing mother. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That's what it says in the ESV. It also says, so both of those have gentle. But the New Living Translation talks about, but instead we were like children among you. That's what the New Living Bible says. As, as apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead we were children among you. Or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. And the Net Bible says, although we could have imposed our weight as apostles of Christ, instead we became little children among you, like a nursing mother caring for her own children. So the, the choice that we're faced with here is, we were gentle in your midst, or we were infants in your midst. And I, I talked to you about how the translators do not always follow the lead of the, of the textual scholars, because the, the majority of the textual scholars think it was infants. And a lot of uh, modern English translations go with gentle. The RSV, the ESV, the NSV, the NIV, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. In fact, there's more of those than, than go with infants, the one that, that the uh, textual scholars suggest. The reason that the translators have so much trouble with this one is they can't bring themselves to believe that Paul would mix his metaphors in this way. <laughs> They can't believe that he would say we were, we were infants and then turn right around and say we were, we were like a nursing mother. Well, this, this image doesn't seem to, to work. Well, this idea that you shouldn't mix your metaphors, that's a, a convention of modern English writing. That's not something that applies to first century Greek. Paul often mixed his metaphors. In this very same passage, Paul describes himself both as an orphan child and as a father. So it was a common thing for Paul to mix his metaphors. So this idea that you can't mix your metaphors or you shouldn't mix your metaphors, that's not something that should guide our decision about the writings of the first century in Greek. <laughs> so... But here, here's the other interesting thing I want to show you about this. Remember how I told you that in, in Greek, often these textual variants are very similar. They're, so the only difference between we became infants or we became gentle, see over here, you see a letter that looks similar to our English letter V, but that's actually new. That's, that's the, the N sound in Greek. But you see, the only difference between this word and this word is that this one doesn't have a new in front of it. So they're, they're, they're very similar. And, and scholars think that 
somewhere along the line, a copy is simply dropped out that letter and became this word. <laughs> so it became, we were gentle instead of we were infants. So it's, it's surprising sometimes how, how similar these textual variants are in Greek because they seem so dissimilar in English. First Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That's the King James. The NASB says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So we have these two these two textual variants. Either God was manifested or who was manifested. The older King James and the new King James, which was based upon that, said that God was manifested. All of the newer English translations say who was manifested. This textual variant caused great controversy in the 19th century because there were people who said, what, you can't do that, you can't change from God to who, because then it doesn't say who, who we're talking about. It, it's got to be God. Well, th- there was no sinister or diabolical agenda here. The, the, the textual critics were just simply trying to determine what was the original reading. And the textual evidence indicates that later copyists Changed, changed it from who to God because they wanted to specify who that who was. But once again, I'll, I'll probably talk a little bit about this at the end, about the whole King James-only controversy. I really want to, to cover that thoroughly sometime, but not tonight. Okay, James 2.20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? That's what it says in the King James. But the ESV says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So those are the the textual variants we have. Faith apart from works is dead, or faith apart from works is useless. Now, there are other places in James where he does talk about how faith apart from works is dead. Um, that would be in, in chapter 2, verse 17, and also in verse 226. But in this particular verse, it does appear that he is saying that death apart from work, faith apart from works is useless. Not that it's dead, that it's useless. Now, it may also be possible that James is doing some wordplay here. Um, 
as some of you may know, I'm, I'm a punster. I like a play on words, a good play on words. Um, Paul and, the, and some of the other um, some of the other New Testament writers like plays on words too. They like to, they like wordplay. You do, you never see any of that in, in the English translations because the wordplay is in the Greek and, and puns just don't transfer from one language to another. <laughs> now here here's perhaps the wordplay that that James was using when he said that that faith without works is useless. Because if we look at the Greek words for works and useless, well, the the word for works is ergon, and the word for useless is arge. Faith without argon is arge. So he was perhaps using a, a play on words in, in his uh, statement that faith without works is useless. First John 2.20 But you have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things, says the King James. The ESV says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. So, the textual variants that we're looking at, you know everything, or you all know. Now, granted, there are some Christians who think they know everything, but it's more likely that, that Paul was emphasizing you all know, not you know all. So, because the emphasis in this context is on shared communal knowledge that you all know, not that you know everything. Once again, in the Greek, they're quite similar. So, you and you all know is odite pontus, whereas you know all things is odite ponta. So they are quite similar, and you could easily see how a scribe could change one into the other. Pontus versus Ponta. The book of Revelation we're getting into now. Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's the King James. The ESV says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So there are two sets of textual variants that we're looking at here. That's why I put one in blue and one in red. So some manuscripts say, to the one having loved us and having washed us from our sins. And some manuscripts say, to the one loving us. Notice that it's loving as an ongoing thing versus having loved us in the past. And having freed us from our sins rather than having washed us from our sins. So... 
there's a couple of things going on here. For one thing, this change from having, from loving to having loved. One of the things that copyists tended to do was they tended to smooth out the grammar. So uh, at some point, a copyist didn't think that was right, that it said the one loving us, you know, present tense, and the one having freed us from the, pa- from the past. So he changed it. Well, he was, he was dealing with wash, but whichever. So he changed it. So both of them, both of the participles would be the same. Instead of having one, um, let's see, he changed it so they would both be aorist participles. So he changed having, loving to having loved, so they'd both be the same. Both, both having loved and having washed, or having washed us. So that, that's why you see the difference between having loved and loving. And then this other one, free, washed versus freed. What's going on there? Well, the, the earliest and the best manuscripts have the more difficult reading freed rather than washed. So it, it is thought that freed, because it, it, it is the more difficult reading, is the more likely the original. But once again, look, look how similar they are. Very similar. <laughs> because the only difference between having freed and having washed is one letter. One letter. So for having freed, lambda upsilon sigma, that's the equivalent of L U S. And, and over here, we have lambda. Omicron, Upsilon, Sigma. Just one more letter. The Omicron. But they're pronounced the same. They're, they're both uh, Lusanti. Both the, with, with just the uh, Upsilon and with the Omicron, Upsilon. They're both ooh, the ooh sound. So, so having freed and having washed doesn't look much alike in English, but it is very much alike in Greek. And then, Revelation twenty two nineteen, and I'm sure that Eric will talk a little bit about this shortly. And he's he's doing his he's into you're into chapter twenty two now, right? <laughs> um, and if any man shall take away from the words of the, the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. That's the King James. The ESV says, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So, we've got some manuscripts that say the book of life and some manuscripts that say the tree of life. And the King James is, is using the, the, the Byzantine text, the majority text, because the Alexandrian text had not yet been discovered when the King James Bible was written, so they, they went with the Book of Life. Now, there are many scriptures in the Book of Revelation which talk about the Book of Life, 
Revelation 3, 5, 13, 8, 17, 8, 20, 12, and 15, and 21, 27. There are verses that talk in Revelation that talk about the book of life. But is that what is being talked about in this particular verse? Well, you've heard Tina Turner's question about what the love got to do with it. Well, the question here is what's Latin got to do with it? Book and tree don't look much alike in English. They don't look much alike in Greek either. But they are kind of alike in Latin. Well, how does Latin come into the picture? The text that was used primarily for the New Testament of the King James Version is what came to be known as the Textus Receptus, the TR. That's what was used for the, for the, for the New Testament of the King James Version. The Textus Receptus was produced by a man named Erasmus. Erasmus was his last name. His first name was Desiderius, Desiderius Erasmus. He was a, a, a Dutch scholar. And he produced the Textus Receptus in the 16th century. He, he had very limited resources from which to make, from which to compile his text. He only had seven manuscripts. And the last six verses of the book of Revelation were not in any of his manuscripts. So what was he to do? What he did was he took a Latin manuscript and he retro-translated it back into Greek. He took those, those six verses in Latin and translated back into Greek. And that's how he got those last six verses for his Greek text, his Greek, the, the Textus Receptus that was eventually used to make the New Testament of the King James Version. And the Latin talked about the book of life. Even though there's no Greek support, there's no support in the ancient Greek manuscripts for book of life. So he said, the book of life, as, as the Latin did, even though that's not found in the Greek, because he, he didn't have access to any Greek manuscript that had those last six verses. So, we have this decision. Well, is, is the book of life or the tree of life more, more likely? Well, what is happening here in Revelation twenty-two nineteen is we've come full circle. We've come from the tree of life back in the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis, and now we're coming to the tree of life in, in, in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's, it's a very imminent promise in the book of Revelation that the faithful Christian will be allowed to enjoy the tree of life. So that, that it, it most likely is the tree of life rather than the book of life, even though there are many other verses in Revelation which talk about the book of life. This particular verse is talking about the tree of life. And I, I mentioned to you that tree isn't similar, tree and book aren't similar in, in uh, English or in Greek, but they, but they are kind of alike in Latin. In Latin, the, the word for tree is ligno, and the word for book is libro. 
It's from that word libro, the, the Latin word for book that we get our English word library. That's where books are stored in, in a library. Book is libro. Um, the word for tree is ligno. Um, the only example I can think of that is, um, have you ever heard of lignite, coal? as a type of coal that's not perfectly developed. It's still kind of woody, kind of, kind of, it's brown colored rather than black like coal, like you normally think of coal. So that, that's once again referring to the tree, the, the Latin word for tree. So that's, that's how we, that's what Latin has to do with it. And that's why the King James says the, the book of life, whereas scholars today recognize that it should be tree of life. So I, I decided not to to get into this to the King James King James only controversy thoroughly because I didn't think we would have time. But I do want to at least discuss it a little bit. I'll, I'll cover it more thoroughly some other time. But how, how many of you are familiar with, or at least somewhat familiar with with the King James only controversy? It, it's something that can easily lead well-meaning people astray because it plays on our emotions and it plays on our, our desire to defend the Word of God. Basically, the, the King James only position is that we shouldn't use any other English translation but the King James. They would say that all of the modern English translations, the the NIV and the ESV and the Holman Christian Standard Bible and the Net Bible and whatever, all of these modern English translations are perverted, they're corrupt, they're, they're out to undermine the Word of God, they're out to denigrate and deny the, the uh, deity of Christ, so just stick with the King James. That's, that's the King James only position. And people who who want to defend the Word of God, who want who realize that Christianity and the Word of God is under attack, they um, they, they can easily fall prey to this argument. Because what what the King James only people will do is they will they they like charts, and they'll make a chart and they'll say with with all of the certain selected verses from the from the King James Bible and they'll show those verses the selected verses in some other modern translation like the NIV or the the ESV or the NASB and they'll show how they're different and they, what they like to do is find ones scriptures where the king where the newer translations omit a word and they'll say see they left that out of the Bible well they, they won't even consider the possibility that maybe that was added to the Bible. <laughs> they, won't, they won't consider that possibility. So, so they, they, liked, they, let, they like to produce charts to show you this, but they're very selective. They won't show you those cases where words are found in the newer translations, but they're not in the King James. They, they won't show you those examples. Another thing that I find about King James only people advocates is 
See, when, when Bob writes an article in CIC or when he preaches a sermon and he, he warns us about the false teachings of some particular individual, he just talks about that person's false teachings. He doesn't go on to say, and besides that, he has B.O., dandruff, and halitosis. I mean, he, in other words, he doesn't attack them personally. He, he just talks about their, the shortcomings, the unscriptural teachings, right? But I find that the most extreme King James-only people are not at all above ad hominem attacks. You know, attacking their opponents. If they can't persuade you by their arguments, they try to persuade you by their uh, by your emotions, by telling you that, that these people who, that oppose them are really bad people. Um, I can't even think of his name. It, it's Peter something. One of the most outspoken advocates of the King James only position. Ruckman. Peter Ruckman. That's it. There you go. I knew somebody would think of it. <laughs> See, Peter Ruckman is a graduate of Bob Jones University. But he doesn't like the faculty of Bob Jones University because they won't buy into his King James only arguments. So if you, if you were to read the, read, the writings of, of Peter Ruckman, a lot of it has to do with very snide, sarcastic comments about these people rather than, rather than dealing with the arguments. He, he attacks the people. <laughs> And so that's another, another thing that, that, uh, that, I, that I don't like about the King James Only movement is that they won't, they won't stick to the issues. They, they want to, in order to try to persuade you, they, they attack the, 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 their opponents. And when I, when I cover um, The King James only argument, King James only controversy, more thoroughly. I'll, I'll give you some examples of of what they do, what the King James only advocates do, and and why their reasoning isn't isn't correct. But um, we'll we'll save that for later. Do you have any any questions about textual criticism or textual variance? <laughs> 